I'm Grant, an engineering and technology leader who will share the secrets of IT with you. Listen up, because we're about to get into it. Hey, welcome to Getting Into It with Grant. I'm happy to say that I've now had the pleasure of speaking with not just one, but two members of the company Memrise. I spoke with Steve Toy, their CEO, last time, and now for this episode, I spoke with Ben Watley, a co-founder and their current CSO or Chief Strategy Officer. Usually when I put episodes together, I have a loose outline of what it is that I want to talk about with my guest. Well, we went way off script for this episode, and it's because the topic of conversation was just so interesting to me that I couldn't let the opportunity pass me by. It's clear that Ben is very intelligent and very passionate about education and language learning, so it was no wonder that Memorize was successful. He and I talked about how the brain actually learns a language and some of the issues with a classical education and how it teaches language in a more rigid manner than the brain actually learns. We did change gears later and talk about what it was like as an early stage startup company and obtaining venture capital and investments as well. So if you're interested in starting a tech company one day or are here because you are interested in how the brain works, well, we talk about it all. So before we jump into the episode, if you like these interviews and want to be on the show one day, or if you want to sponsor an episode even, let me know by emailing me at hello at grantdryden.com. And now, here's our conversation. All right, Ben, thanks for joining me on the podcast. It's a pleasure to talk with you today. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. So uh, last time I talked with Steve and he had some really good answers to the questions uh, that I, I had about Memrise. And so today what I wanted to do was kind of talk to you about those early days as one of the co-founders and the current CSO of Memrise. Uh, I just wanted to get an idea of how your background helped take this product uh, from an idea into a reality in those first days, what it kind of looked like launching a startup company, and then how you help lead the business today as well. So with that, maybe I'll, I'll start after you graduated high school. You went to college. What did you do there? How did you meet the people that, that were your co-founders? Yeah, so I, um, as a teenager, I got really into building and using neural networks, which was a bit geeky. It was actually combining geekiness with high risk, uh, with high risk tolerance, which is probably <laughs> the description of a of a tech entrepreneur, someone <laughs> destined to fall into tech entrepreneurship. So I. It got into it because I was really, I was trying to use them to predict the results of horse races. And I became convinced that I could wow. spot patterns in, uh, uh, there was massive data sets available and that I could use them to spot patterns. I never managed to do that very successfully. <laughs> but that got me into studying neural nets. So I went to Oxford to study um, experimental psychology, specifically neuroscience within that, because I wanted to be building neural networks. Mm -hmm. um, well, then studying neural networks, I got, I was then getting more into studying the brain and how we store memories, how we learn and started seeing, I had a kind of working mental model for, or at least I noticed the way that I spoke about memory and learning was as though there was this thing called memorization where you learn a fact and then mm -hmm you learn to do stuff with that fact. And a great example of that would be, you learn the fact of the meaning of a word, and then you learn grammar rules to create sentences with it. Now, that's not how the brain works. And hmm. it's not a very good metaphor at all. And the idea we talk about trying to retrieve that memory, like we're trying to sort of retrieve a file from a filing cabinet, it's just not how it hmm. works. Our memories are fully distributed. They're not, you don't go to a place to store the memory. It's distributed across the network. Um, and 
the way that uh, and, and learning is not a, a process of like storing an exact fact it, it's like we have this myth of photographic memory you don't store a photograph in your mind you store a processed version of what you took from it so you can have a clear picture in your mind that you can remember that doesn't mean that's what you saw <laughs> there can be a huge difference you saw wow. that that is what you processed and then remembered um and there are a lot of examples of how people can you know, just have completely false memories of things but what that what i got particularly interested in was how that um, impacts learning of languages and, and as i say this idea that i had kind of been taught this model of language learning as you learn words and then you apply grammar rules to them and i'd found it uh, useless like I, I was very bad at learning the only thing i learned at, at language lessons at school was that i was bad at language <laughs> which is not actually true I have a human brain and like every other human, mm -hmm. my brain compulsively learns languages. It, it can't help it. If you are in a situation where you are trying to understand another person and you're motivated mm -hmm. to try and get them to understand you, you will learn a language. It's what your brain does. You can't help it. Mm -hmm. And it will learn it because it's spotting patterns in the input and then it's trying to make sense of them. We constantly try and make sense of the patterns that come in. When we look at clouds, we try and see what they look like. You know, mm -hmm. you, we're always looking for spotting patterns that we're familiar with. And so when we hear patterns of um, uh, language coming in, we try and make sense of them. Um, and so when I, and, and so what it occurred to me is that the, the problem was not just in the way I was being taught. The problem was that the, the process of learning a language is actually mostly about effective practice. Okay. And I was being given, you know, it's maybe 20% of a good language learning journey is actually learning stuff. And 80% is just going out and practicing it. Actually, you can get there without the 20% of learning. You can't just practice. That's what every child on the planet has ever done. Yeah. <laughs> That's how you learn a language. You can go faster if you put in about 20% of your time into learning stuff. It makes the practice more effective. Mm -hmm. um, and the problem with my language education was I'd been given 95% you know, learn and 5% practice, which mm -hmm. is kind of like teaching someone to swim in a classroom and then at the end of it, throwing them in a lake. <laughs> and right, like, very different. Hey, you passed the exam. Yeah, maybe that's 5% practice. So maybe every fifth lesson, you pour a bucket of water over their head just to get them used to the water. <laughs> but it, it's no more useful than that. You know, that is literally what yeah. happened in my language learning um, career at school. So again, I'm, I'm rambling on. So that, that no, was like, no, you're all good. That, that was how I got really into um, the study of second language acquisition. It was via artificial intelligence neural well in the day in those days i just thought of it as neural networks um mm -hmm. and then what has become these kind of uh, large language models um yeah so this is good i've got a couple questions here as you've been talking through this um this has gone in a, a direction i didn't expect i'm i'm really interested so when you talked about um, the distributed <laughs> Did you not nature, to be interested. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I expected to talk to you about a startup company, but this is really fascinating stuff um, because 
when you talked about learning a language and it being part of the distributed network of a person's brain, <clears throat> some of the things I've heard about how to remember things is to construct like a 3D location in your mind, like your house. And if you want to remember objects, yeah, so memory palace, it, memory palace right? can work super, super well. And that's just playing into the ways that our brain works naturally in a way it's like hacking uh -huh. the fact that we are spatial creatures that are really good at remembering place. And so mm -hmm. if you want to learn information that is fundamentally uninteresting to your brain, uh -huh. you can give it a context and, and plug it in. Okay. And, uh, but there's an important point about that. that our brains are highly efficient. They learn mm -hmm. the things that we need to learn to go about our daily life. When you're hacking it like that, you're mm -hmm. kind of, you're trying to get your brain to remember something that actually doesn't, for survival, it doesn't really need to learn. And that mm -hmm. can be a really useful thing to do. But you've also got to realize that you, your brain's efforts to simplify and only learn the useful stuff is also super, super important. And so where, um, just refer it back to language learning again, Mm -hmm. you you learn you naturally learn to use grammar constructions in the order in which they're important to convey meaning not in the order that they're taught in a syllabus and there's a great okay. example of this that every second language learner learning english learns like in lesson one that in the third person singular you put an s on the end so like i eat he eats mm -hmm. learn it right at the start grammar rule now you've learned that rule, you can do it to that word. When you see the word eat, you can apply this grammar rule to it. No English language speaker, learner, gets to use that construction until they're upper intermediate. Okay. They never do it. Doesn't, you teach it to them in lesson one, you repeat it in all the other lessons, doesn't make any difference. They don't do it until they're upper intermediate. And the reason they don't is that it doesn't convey any meaning. It's totally unimportant. Right. Um, it, 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 it's redundant. If I say he eat the fish, you know exactly what I'm saying. No one's confused. Yeah, and your for brain, sure. and that's your brain taking a shortcut. Your brain is only learning the bit it actually needs to learn in order to get mm -hmm. its message across. And then at some point, it also doesn't want people to like look at them like they're slightly stupid. And so it, it's like, okay, I'll, I'll, I get the picture. I'll put an S at the end. But it, it's only a very incremental bit of meaning. So. Uh, back to memory palaces, it's a really cool technique. Mm -hmm. And it can be really, really useful for specific things. So um, for example, if you learn poetry, it can be a really great way of getting that initially into your into your brain. So okay. I, um, I have four children, they're terrible at going to sleep, or they were when they were young. <laughs> um, and I had spent a long time lying in bed next to them trying to help them go to sleep. And uh, I found that if I told them stories, they're like, tell me a story. But the problem with the story is if, if it's an exciting story, they don't go to sleep. Mm -hmm. And uh, if it's a boring story, they're just like, dad, this is a boring story. Why can't something interesting happen? They're yeah. almost interested by the boringness. So what I alighted on was you could just recite poetry to them okay. that has a rhythm to it and a feeling to it. And they can kind of engage with it, but kind of the language might go a little bit over their head sometimes. And mm -hmm. it, it, it would reliably shut them out and, and so i used a memory palace to go around and put each i can still remember it in my parents house um where i spent my teenage years starts off outside the back door there was a little down pipe and a drain pipe 
down there and right there i've got a little picture of a bridge and it's how horatius held the bridge from the lays of ancient rome by thomas babington macaulay nice. which is this poem that then goes on line by line i can follow that through the house i go in the back door i go along there into the loo mm -hmm. and it oh. um I, I can i can do about an hour and a quarter of that entirely through this memory palace and as i go through it wow. i still follow my way through I, it's quite hard to start midway through um but i i, I can kind <laughs> of i used to be able to do it but now the memory uh, the detailed memory has slightly faded and if i go like onto the back veranda i'm like oh, hold on yeah it takes me a little it'll take me a little while right gotta reinvigorate those neurons now i'm like the one burger spy a line of burning villages red in the midnight sky so I, right. I can get there but it takes a little while to recall that and i think those memory techniques are super powerful for those kinds of things where you're leading your brain slightly outside the scope of what it does naturally mm -hmm. to be a surviving human being awesome well that actually that gave me a great idea because i do two podcasts so i do this one and then also one called story time with dad uh, i've got three kids myself <laughs> year old a two year old and uh, almost one year old and i started that podcast when my daughter my eldest was born and um i try and it, it, exactly like you said right like some stories are so exciting it prevents them from sleeping and other ones just aren't engaging and so uh having it on a podcast and just hearing my voice i try and speak in a, like a soothing manner soothing you know? way. yeah great i always meant to do that but and kudos to you for actually doing that i never I, I i used to lie there trying to tell the stories and i was always like pretty tired at the end of a at the end of a day and i do you know baba do you have that the story of the yeah. elephant yeah mm -hmm. so i um I, I one time i remember telling a story and i was super tired and i kept on drifting off to sleep as i was talking and then mm -hmm. waking up again and hearing my voice as i was talking and it was like i was drifting in and out of consciousness <laughs> and uh, i i decided i had to stop telling stories after i woke up to find myself saying and Celeste discovered that Barbar had become involved with a French woman. And, <laughs> and I was like, I just, and they were like, what? Barbar's having an affair. I said, well, I, I am sorry. I, oh my gosh. I cannot trust my subconscious. I don't know what's going on. So I had to, I, I had to bail on telling stories. And I was like, okay, I'm going to stick to poetry in future. Memory oh my palace. gosh, it's too funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so memory palaces then. So it sounds like those are mostly for things that may be, um, obviously memorization or things that are not things that you want to engage with. And language learning is really all about putting it to use, right? Yeah, you should want exactly. to use so it or have could, a reason to. We, we have done a lot of, there's a, another memory technique of using mnemonics, which like when I was learning Chinese character, learning to read Chinese, that was mm -hmm. super important. You know, the creating mnemonics for what each character looks like can speed up your learning to read in Chinese. Like, thousand times it's so okay. effective and you can also do it for words what things sound like um so in french please is s'il vous plaît and i remember i had a, a, a mem which was a picture of a silver platter and it was like please can you bring it to me on a silver plate and it's like silver plate and it just it doesn't get you all the way there oh, but it's yeah. something that your brain can start gripping onto where otherwise sounds are just totally amorphous and you can't really get a grip on them and so it, it starts to give you a way to grip to get a grip on it but pretty quickly you want to graduate to 
hearing the word and immediately meaning being there. Uh-huh. And when you do that, you no longer want to use the mnemonic. So, so the mnemonic can be helpful in getting you started, but pretty quickly you move to the more important thing being when someone says it, do I understand it? Yeah. And uh, we actually have, uh, have now within the product shortcutted to that. We found that actually the, the mem stage, the creating a mnemonic stage, it can help if your task is to pass a vocab test where you've got to learn 500 words, then yeah, some mems can help you do that. But actually that's a bit of a cul-de-sac in, uh, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of your actual learning. Like you, you don't need to learn the translations. You need to understand when someone speaks. So yeah. better to focus yourself straight on that problem and your brain will solve that problem. I actually, as, as, as an example, I, when learning uh, the first thing, the, the first content we had on Memrise was Chinese and I was using it. It was the content I was creating to teach myself oh, to read Chinese was the, mm-hmm. the first content that we put onto Memrise. And, uh, but one of the things I found, yes, it made you learn much faster, but I also found this an interesting side piece was that I got to the stage where I would see a Chinese character and I would start typing it the word in English mm-hmm. before I had the understanding of what it was. Oh. And so my brain had actually shortcut to mm. the response of what letters to type before I had the understanding, That's which neat. is kind of insane that it, that you learn, mm. you, you learn to do the task that you're given and <laughs> your, your brain is <laughs> so good at not learning to do any other bullshit and forgetting yeah. things that it doesn't need to know. And so, yeah, I, I just learned that shortcut. We now, that was in early days memorized. That's why we now do a whole mix of tests and tests from videos and tests from audio to reduce the chances of you getting one of those false learning paths where you can only do that. You can only do it in the context of being shown it or memorized and then you don't want to type it. It's like I sometimes, if people actually, in, another thing in China on the ATM machines, the number pad, they don't mm-hmm. seem to have a convention of starting with zero at the top, then going one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, mm-hmm. or starting at the top, starting, starting at the bottom with zero, and going one, two, three, and going back up the other way. And that meant that I'm so used to doing my pin numbers by position. Oh, yeah. That I scarcely even know what my pin number is. It's just, <laughs> I go to it and I know it's do 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 and so yeah. when i um i used to get my cards followed by the machine the whole time because i come up and i'd be like <laughs> oh crap is it it's uh it's that one that one oh, jesus which one <laughs> and again because i just learned the act the positional my finger relationship the with the numbers and i no longer knew what the number was yeah mm-hmm Goodness. We're way off. We're way off startup stuff. <laughs> well, this is great. This is uh, about how the brain works, and it's really neat to hear all of these different tricks and and pathways through the brain where you're relating like visual tasks to to motor motor tasks, right? And you're skipping that. It was I think it was I love Lucy way back in the day. It was Ricky had told Lucy like he translates the English into like Cuban or whatever his language is in his brain, and then he translates it back. And I feel like as a product of classical education, that's a lot of what I did 
or do probably still um, when I'm thinking like Spanish, right? So I took Spanish in high school. I took it for three years and it was frustrating to me because they teach you AR, ER, IR verbs. And so you're locked into this pattern uh, of how you map like first person and second person, third person, and you're, you're boxed into only those AR verbs. But I found quickly, it's like, well, you can't really say a whole lot because you've got to mix and match all of the different verb types. And so I found that classical education to be very frustrating for me personally. And so I would do self-study and kind of jump ahead in the books and like screw the whole thing up. And, and uh, so I think my teacher both enjoyed seeing that, but was also like, Grant, stay in your box because it's hard to grade your papers. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I, I appreciate how you've gone about this. It's making it more functional and learning the things well, it's that you also, know. And, it's, mm-hmm. it's just on a motivational level. To, to get to fluent in a language, you've got to learn mm-hmm. a whole ton of stuff. But to be able to do a particular conversation, you actually don't have to learn very much at all. To stay motivated, like I, I could teach you to navigate a tea shop in China. I could probably get you through that conversation in 15, 20 minutes of, uh, of memory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty simple ring fence task. You're asking for a couple of things. You're understanding the things they're likely to say back. It's, it's pretty scoped and tight. Um, but... what the challenge is, is keeping you motivated from point one to fluent when there's all this stuff to learn. And if you're just learning all of the structure of the language before you start to be able to do stuff, it's a long time before you get a real reward and payoff. And really the moment when you make someone laugh in the language, you tell a joke, you have a bit of a human connection. That's the point at which you start feeling really motivated and like, okay, I, I've got this, I can, I can get mm-hmm. somewhere. Um, whereas we tend to teach around very functional things like buying a bus ticket. You know, actually, the conversation you want to have in a cafe is something that where you kind of share a little joke with the barista. You have a little moment where you feel like, I'm not a tourist, I'm a person that is here in relationship with you as a person. And and that's what we really need to kind of prioritize. Oh, but to, to, to this point, we um, when you're learning through a syllabus and we design the, the, a syllabus or teachers design a curriculum or syllabus, um, you are learning so much that you don't need in order mm-hmm. to have that first magical moment that all your energy right. and enthusiasm and motivation is being wasted on irrelevance. And what we do at Memrise is try and create courses that are totally bespoke to your interests and are totally mm-hmm. the shortest route to you want to be able to connect with someone in that situation. Here's pretty much the shortest route you can get there. It's going to be like 15 words. You're going to watch a bunch of videos of those words being used. You're going to see real people saying them with different accents, with um, in slightly different contexts at different speeds. And then you're going to practice having a conversation about it yourself using all of that. You're not going to be able to have every conversation about it, but you're going to be able to have that conversation in a way that helps you to connect with someone. And then you've got one conversation in the back. And then you can go and have the next one and the next one and the next one. And that's really the most efficient way to build up whilst maintaining motivation. Yeah. So maybe this is a grant problem here, but 
how are you all approaching the person to person interactions? Because when, so I know Spanish, but I'm still embarrassed when I talk to a real person who speaks right. that fluently. How can I, do you have any advice for how a person can get over that hurdle? Yeah. So I, I do have some advice on that Grant. So what we, <laughs> what we, uh, what we built last year, um, we've built, various versions of this over the last 10 years because it's such a it's such an important problem it's like to to speak a new new language you need to get good at understanding people you need to get um which means hearing enough target language input then you need to get good at expressing yourself which basically is about overcoming your embarrassment about mm -hmm. being rubbish at speaking the language and then you just need a ton of practice at it and so getting over that embarrassment requires you practicing. So over the years, we've built various versions of this, but it all really changed when GPT-3 came out mm -hmm. two and a half years ago, nearly three years ago now. And we started building on that, trying to build up, because we said, as soon as we saw it, we were like, this is a technology that allows us to create human-like conversation mm -hmm. without a human being present. And at the same time, improvements like Whisper AI building on uh, giving improved uh, speech to text, which is now mm -hmm. pretty flawless. You know, you, you look at things like Siri that were getting quite good, but Whisper AI is just an, an order of magnitude better. Mm -hmm. And all of this coming together means that we could create a, um, a conversational AI where we can get you to role play a ton of situations and role play situations where you're trying to do something again it's about this connection it's not just buy a coffee it's um i know one of them is it's not just buy a car you have to persuade the salesman to sell you the car for less than 500 bucks so you have a bit of tension with the salesman there's a bit of like you're trying to persuade them you're trying to try out some tactics trying to make something happen and that gives it a kind of free song, gives it an excitement, um, as well as just being give, giving you that access to spoken language conversation. Mm -hmm. And so what, what we find is that if people go into a practice conversation and they go through five, 10 repetitions of a conversation, it's pretty low. Actually, people tend to start off typing because even speaking in the comfort of your own room is a bit embarrassing. But if you, so people start off typing and they get kind of comfortable out, like, okay, I know what to say. And then you show them a few more videos, a few more people, attractive people using language and talking like, okay, they sounded cool. I, I want to be cool mm -hmm. like that. And I go back and, I, and I'm over the fact I know that I know what to say because I've done it with typing. So now I'll go back and do this out loud and have the conversation with the bot. And once mm -hmm. you've been through you know, five, five, 10 repetitions of speaking through a conversation, then when you put yourself in the real life situation, it's not a big jump to talk. It's mm -hmm. like, I've done this a bunch of times and you, our, our brains work by going down these, the path of least resistance and what they are used to doing. So if you just get your brain used to having a conversation, used to understanding and responding to what they say, then you go into a live conversation and that's no longer threatening. And one of the things we're trying to overcome is it's kind of a bit of a design fault in the brain where um, for these for these particular use cases, it is a bit of a design fault that we um, stress is very good 
for helping you form memories. Mm-hmm. If, if a, a really intense experience is very memorable, but they are, stress is very bad for helping you recall memories. And okay. the, uh, and you see that because when you're stressed, when you go to try and practice in front of a native speaker, you get stressed, you start worrying about how stupid you're going to look, they're going to judge me, it's going to be embarrassing, <laughs> yeah. oh my God, I'm stressed, and you can't remember anything. And mm. the way that people get over that, traditionally, is that they go and have a couple of beers. And then they're like, okay, I'm less stressed now, I'm pretty chill. <laughs> <laughs> so now my Spanish is all of a sudden brilliant. The, a problem with that, and there are other problems, but a problem with that is that alcohol does also slightly impact your ability to recall. But mm-hmm. it doesn't impact it as much as stress does. So alcohol's okay. ability to suppress your stress is more important than its uh, deleterious effect on uh, recall. Yeah, well, that's why they call it liquid courage, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> anyway, so my advice to you is not to go and get drunk. My advice to you there is you go. to um, go and practice on the member, as we call it. The member is our, our conversational AI that allows you to practice without getting in front of people and not have, without having that stress. Okay. So I presume there are going to be people who are listening to this episode who haven't downloaded the app, haven't used it before. How does one, is it easy to find Membot in the app? How does one get to that location? Yeah. So if you, if you download it, there are, there are three tabs. Um, so the, the kind of sequence that we take people through in Memrise, um, call it, we talk about our, our pedagogic stool. We've got a little yellow stool. Have I got one here? We have a little yellow stool, three legs. Mm-hmm. And uh, the three legs of the stool that hold up your support you on your language learning journey are learn, immerse, and communicate. So learn is where you learn the words and phrases you need to. Immerse is where we find we using the words and phrases that you've learned, we then search the internet for thousands of videos from YouTube, TikTok, wherever else that you can now understand. Mm-hmm. So even when you just learn 10 phrases, 10 words, we can start showing you videos because there are videos from Spanish TikTok that only use five words. So we can show those to you. And these are actually funny videos that Spanish people find funny that are now part of your language learning journey. So that's the immerse part. And then we've got the communicate part where you practice talking to the bot. When you go into the app, you'll find there are three tabs, learn, immerse, communicate. And you just Mm -hmm. cycle between those three. And where you go and communicate and you have more conversations you can add words in for you to learn um to, so if you come across phrases that you think oh i'm gonna need that later you can go and add that to the words to learn <clears throat> as you watch videos likewise you can say you you can watch all the videos where we're like you know all of these words so enjoy those ones and then we can show you videos like you know most of the words here if you learn a couple more words then you've got the whole video and so you can use each of these kind of incentivizes you or opens up more to be done in the other. The more videos you watch, the more words get added to your list of words to learn. The more words you learn, the more videos get opened up. Okay. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Thank you for sharing uh, how we get to there in the app. And so people who download it can start uh, kind of learning whatever language they want to. Uh, I personally have a stake in learning Russian. My brother lived in Ukraine for like 10 years. And, uh, I was always, I tried to learn Russian and it's been very difficult. 
uh, partly because uh, I think the the structure of the language, there's like two different ways you can do an L in your mouth. And so I actually had to have a person coach me how to make the different uh, uh, types of vocalization. And the language itself is just very difficult, uh, I found. And so I've kind of, what I'll, I'll do is I rapidly hit a plateau with a lot of these languages. And so mm. I've been interested in Korean and uh Spanish and Japanese and Russian. And so I've dabbled in a lot of different things. And so I think Memrise, uh, getting access to, to Membot can help me kind of flesh out my uh, abilities in a lot of these different languages. Just, I like to collect them, right? It's not like I have a use for a lot of these languages. And so, yeah, as, and what uh, I'd encourage you, said, you is to also like operationalize them a bit. And mm -hmm. it is that going swimming rather than just learning about the theory of swimming. And mm -hmm. uh, that is what watching a bunch of videos that use the language um, it does make it much easier to internalize those grammar rules. And I think Russian, yeah, is, is, is one where there's, it's a highly inflected language and it's, so there's a, a lot of grammar rules that you can learn. But you've also got to remember that Russian kids learn to be able to speak Russian, even if they don't learn the grammar rules. So mm -hmm. You don't need need it, and it, it, but you do need to have the right kind of contextual practice. If you watch loads of videos, you will you, that use words that you understand. Mm -hmm. Your brain will infer the grammar, and you will be able to pick that out. It will also be helpful to you to sometimes have it explained to you. Like I'm not saying that there's no use in saying, oh, oh, by the way, when they're inflecting the verb in that way, this is what it means and this is why they're doing it. That can be a great shortcut. You know, I'm not a fan of this. You know, Rosetta Stone had that like children learn without translations. It's all through pictures. And, yeah. you, and you have to guess at what the picture is expressing. It's like, this is stupid. Just tell me what it is and I can translate it. <laughs> you, know, you, you don't need to needlessly um, avoid being explicit and conceptual. As adults, we can understand concepts and that can help us move faster. But where we try to teach a language through, led by the concepts, we're doing it upside down. It, it should be that you learn to be able to understand phrases, you then, in the context of that, get a partial explanation of the grammar. Of like, oh, by the way, that is le, not la, because the French have got this thing about masculine and feminine. You don't really need mm -hmm. to understand it, but it's just there are two different words for the. Don't worry about it. On we go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you don't. <laughs> it, it, on the one hand, you could not explain that at all. Not very helpful. Or you could over explain it and try and get everyone to totally understand how gender impacts adjectives and all the impact of it. Well, you can mm -hmm. just say, look, there are two different words for the, deal with it and move right. on with your life. And I imagine that mastery comes with time. So maybe at the beginning, it's not super important. I've also heard the nightmare stories, um, particularly maybe it's a uh, Chinese or, or some, or Mandarin rather than ones with like the voice inflection where if you use the wrong inflection or the wrong word, like you're completely misunderstandable, right? Um, yeah, how much actually, of a you know, problem is that? 
So it's definitely a problem, although I still think it's a problem with teaching people rules. Okay. So when you look at a, um, so the romanization system that we, that is currently most popular is called pinion. And that works by giving you a romanization of the syllable and then drawing a picture of the, what the tone of that syllable is. And that results in this situation where you first of all think of the word being ma being ma and then you try and impose a tone rule on top of it so you're constantly thinking ma okay it's second tone ma or fourth tone ma and you're doing this transformation in your mind as you go Mm -hmm. you then ask a native speaker what tone something is and you see them just saying it to themselves a few times listening to themselves say it like i reckon it's uh might be a third tone or might be a second tone not too sure (laughs) (laughs) and but and and so with the tones as well you get you say this syllable is a third tone this this character is a third has a third tone but if that's used before a second tone it changes and there are all these tone change rules and it's a total head it screws with your head (laughs) and and it means when you see chinese learners trying to speak they're there with their head going up and down because they're thinking it's an up tone and a down tone and their their brain is like trying to do something with it and their head's like bucking like a bronco (laughs) and their voice isn't doing the right thing if instead there was actually a competing romanization system called um where, which was developed by a man called Lin Yutang, <clears throat> after whom my son is named. But he um, he had an amazing insight. He was, he was a native Chinese speaker, but an incredible insight into the way that English speakers would find it easy to process language. And he found a way of romanizing all of the syllables in Chinese, but without using, without separating the romanization from the tone. So, for example, he would put um, xie, he, if, if it has a rising tone, it would be spelled S-H-Y-U-E. And by doing the xie, sort of moving to the year, you kind of have to move the tone up, xie, and, and so you do this second tone without thinking, oh, I'm doing that syllable and then putting a second tone mm-hmm. on it. Whereas sure would just be S-H-U-E mm-hmm. because you don't do the Y, so it doesn't do it. And you, But then we as Western people don't think of those as two different tones on the same word. We think of them as different words. Yeah. And You think that's a so, better approach? Uh, yeah, I think it's a, it's a much better romanization system. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is, it's better. Sorry, it's a better romanization system, given that you are a Western person or an English speaker trying to learn Chinese. Mm-hmm. The problem is that the overwhelming use of pinyin in the world is to let mm-hmm. Chinese people type on a keyboard, and oh. <laughs> they don't give a damn about what we find easy to learn. <laughs> so, <laughs> and. Since if you're going to use a Chinese keyboard and if you're going to type in Chinese at any point, you're going to need to learn pinyin 
Mm-hmm. So you, either you've got to learn two randomization systems or you can learn one. And is not good enough to mean you should learn two randomization systems. Okay. So you think, so to think that through then, the Chinese, like a native Chinese speaker then learns it all as one unit. Not as a different. Yeah, like, they they just learn the noise. So the way yeah. the way the um, the way the tones come around and la- come about in language is when consonants are dropped from the end of a syllable. And so, in English at the moment, like what might go to what, and mm-hmm. in order to really know what you're talking about, it kind of what get gets replaced by an uptone and the T drops and you get an uptone. Mm-hmm. And, but you wouldn't find it just on one word. Where it happens in languages, it, it happens consistently. It would happen consistently across the language of a sort of AT sound at the end of a word would turn to an uh, uptone. Mm-hmm. And, and those morphological change, or phonological changes happen across uh, a language all at once. Um, in fact, Navajo Indian, there's the Native American Indian language, Native American language, mm-hmm. I apologize, um, became tonal in the 1800s. In a, it happens in a generation. So the mm-hmm. grandparents were speaking a non-tonal language. The grandchildren were speaking it tonally. And, and these uh, shifts happen. Tang Dynasty Chinese had two tones. Um, modern Chinese has four. Um, Cantonese has more six eight can't remember okay yeah the navajo they were the wind talkers or, or wind speakers or something in world war ii i think we had used their language system to like uh, as something nobody else in the world knew so it was kind of like encrypted communications i believe right double check that but i remember a story like that happening so that's neat about how tonal languages work if you don't mind i want to shift gears here a little bit now you founded memorize back in 2010 something around there. So what were those early first days like um, in terms of funding? And I mean, you were still in college, sort of, I believe. And so how did you get this off the ground? We've been out for a bit. I've been living in China for a while, Uh um, learning Chinese and honing my ideas on second language acquisition, as well as starting a company, a motorcycle restoration factory um, and a shirt tailoring company. Ed, one of my co-founders, had been becoming a grandmaster of memory and had got very into memorization techniques. Other co-founder, Greg, had, be, had got a, been doing his PhD in neuroscience at Princeton. So we all met doing experimental psychology at Oxford. Then we all went our separate ways and then we came back together. I have been working on a tool for language learning and specifically Chinese. Greg and Ed were working on a memorization platform. And then we spent a summer in 2010 so we've, we've been working respectively on that for a year before we brought it together. 2010, we brought that all together mm-hmm. um, into a language learning platform building on the memorization tools. We, so initially we had you know, basically no money um, and uh, we're just all working for nothing. Mm-hmm. Then, so we got a, we went to Seed Camp, which is a, a kind of, seed startup event in in london accelerator program we got offered a place there but we actually didn't take it i think probably a mistake 
think it's a bit of hubris. Um, I think it's a very good program, CCAM, and I think we would have benefited from it. Mm-hmm. But we felt we could do better. We also were approached to that by a VC firm called Boulderton, who are a, okay. a tier one VC in London. We, um, they didn't do pre-seed at that stage. They were kind of series A outfit, but they got really excited. Um, and the partner there, a guy called Mark Evans, who's like stellar, one of the very top echelon of VCs in the, in the UK, you know, with an unrivaled track record really. And so he wanted to go in, the, um, in fact, he said, I'll, I'll do it on my, I'll do it myself. And uh, then we'll put it to the Boulderton team um, once they're back from holidays. Cause this was like in August when you don't okay. get stuff pushed through uh, venture capital firms. He's like, well, I'll do it myself. And then let's put it to the investment committee once they're back, but I'm happy with it anyway. So, so that was how we got our, our first thing. It was just a strong vote of confidence from Mark. Wow. Um, and then that took us through to, we then went on the textiles program in Boston um, early in 2011, which then gave us this framework. It gives a couple of things. I mean, first of all, the startup ecosystem in London at the time was, was a long way behind where it is now and a long mm-hmm. way, way behind the US. And we went to the US largely because we had quite a strong conviction that the way to build a really powerful business in this space was going to be through building a, a a network effect of people who really loved the product and were telling their friends about it. It was a kind of a social viral loop of where people were finding the product much more effective than they expected and that that would allow them to get a, um, a level of progress in learning a language they hadn't expected and that they would tell their friends. But in order to do that, we, and by doing that, we could, we could build a business with you know, tens of millions of users. Mm-hmm. But in order to do that, we had to offer a product for free. And that if we put a paywall in front of it, we would stop ourselves ever getting enough data to create a product that was engaging enough to actually solve the problems. Now at the time in the UK, going around saying that you were trying to create a consumer product that you weren't charging for, VCs were not into that. Mark was very, very rare. Mark's Canadian um, and uh, is is very international in his outlook. And so he got it. But generally the chances of raising money on that chat in London at the time, very slim. So we wanted to to come to the US. Uh, So we went on the textiles program in in Boston and uh, did everything that we thought it should introduced us to a different kind of investor, introduced us, frankly, to a different kind of ambition among startup founders, Mm -hmm. and also, honestly, a different kind of collaboration. Um, There's still, there was still at the time, quite a, a, an attitude of competition with other startups that meant that you should hide your work from them. Like it was quite common in London at the mm-hmm. time for people to say, oh, I've got an amazing startup idea. I'm not going to tell you until you sign an NDA. And <laughs> uh, whereas we, when we went on textiles, actually, there was a, a company also based in Boston called Quizlet, another mm-hmm. learning app. And Quizlet yeah. had about 2 million users when we were there in 2011. So in, in our view, they were like, whoa, those guys are huge and they've made it. Yeah. And they're, they're the big gorilla in the room. 
um, that we've got to compete with. And then we got in touch with the founder and he could not have been more helpful or more open. Guy called Andrew Sutherland. Awesome. He was just like completely laughed at the idea that if his company wasn't successful, it was going to be because we'd eaten their lunch. He was like, guys, this is a big, we're talking about digital learning, a space that doesn't exist now that we're going to completely create in the next 15 years. It's big enough for both of us. Why don't we help each other, given that we're in the same area? Like, let's help. And that was not so a zero refreshing. sum game. It's not a zero sum game, and that and that 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 was very clear in the startup ecosystem there in Boston. It's something that we were keen when we came back to London to model and show that that's how we thought about the world. And I think mm-hmm. London now is is also. A, a lot better at that it, it's really pretty good there's an amazing startup ecosystem i i still think however much we get better in, at it in london that there is something in the uh, so, sort of american mindset of entrepreneurialism and exploration that we can always learn from um mm-hmm. but it was certainly for, formative for us yeah. Do you feel that culture of openness is still very prevalent in the startup world in, in the US and maybe even now in the UK? Um, so I, I haven't been active in a startup in the US for a decade, okay. so I, I don't know. But from what I see, it looks like it is. And and in the UK, yeah, I mean, the, the level of collaboration is much, it, it's super high now. And there are, we have very strong networks within accelerators there are great networks of founder support so founder to founder support there's a lot Mm -hmm. now um i think an area where we still have a long way to go is in angel investors going back in and helping new startups and it's something where we just we just don't have as many big exits yet in the uk that we have enough startup operator founders who've got the cash to go in and write, you know, 50, 10, 20 K tickets a year. We just don't have that many Mm -hmm. people. And that means most of our angel checks are coming from people who have got their money from the city. And that's where, that's where the big money is in in London. Mm -hmm. And that means it's great. They're giving money to early stage startups. And we've got the, I don't know if you know the SEIS, enterprise investment scheme which yeah. means it's basically a tax break that means you can give up to, you can put up to 100k a year into startups and you basically get 50 percent of it back from the government um, <laughs> which is amazing so it means if i'm investing in an early stage startup at a valuation of 1.5 million i'm actually getting a valuation of 750k yeah. and that is pretty that's pretty exciting that's stuff. outstanding yeah um, so, so that's a huge thing, and for people, but the, the, the so people coming out of the city, they've got some cash. It's like the tax-wise, it just makes mm-hmm. sense to put these in, and it's kind of fun. So you get people doing it, but we don't have that value add that can drive the right sort of decision making for really successful early-stage companies. And it is someone who's made their money in the corporate world is more likely to think about process and reducing risk 
and how to build a sensible company. Whereas what you what you need at the early stage of a startup is someone who's just like uh, pushing you to be hugely ambitious, not care about building the business, care about de-risking the biggest um, question marks and being very, very hacky and unsustainable about the way you're um, building your company. <laughs> really? And, okay. Yeah, because you, you definitely, you know, you're not going to be able to scale the way that you start. But the mm -hmm. worst thing you can do is waste your money building up processes before you know what's right. Spend yeah. all of your money on testing things in the most lightweight way possible, promising things that you can't quite deliver on until you see that it's really worth delivering on it then deliver on it but if you if you spend your money trying to solve problems that are two chess moves away you you never earn the right to get to those problems and yeah. the early stage startup is about earning the right to care about those problems and and i think so it's a it's i think a big issue in the uk and actually something that i so i'm part of a angel investor group called ventures together that was set up to tackle exactly this problem and it is 150 like startup operator founders um in the uk ecosystem but we act as we invest everyone makes their own decision to put in money but it's one line in the cap table so startups right. get one investor but they get the benefit of the full network and so they can when they have come across particular problems or when they're looking for particular advice they've got this group of 150 people who have been there done that are currently doing it who can offer really um helpful advice on it so that's that yeah. mm -hmm. that sounds hopefully really powerful. helping us hopefully helping us like catch up on that dimension with the with the u.s ecosystem yeah so you primarily invest in uk startups then or are you open to global startups i'm open to global startups um i am right now overwhelmingly investing in climate tech um because that seems to me to be the most important place yeah. where if i can, as a human i appreciate that yeah. <laughs> we'll <all> benefit. <laughs> right so i do some ed tech still because that is also important and in my it's clearly runs in my veins but the climate tech is where i'm really um putting 90 90 percent of my effort Okay. So I think um, with venture capital come responsibilities for some of these early stage startups. Uh, and do you have any advice on what a founder should be wary of when taking on investors? Yeah, great question. I, I'm going to have to go have a hard stop in two minutes, I'm afraid, but okay. um, I think, uh, I'll definitely feel this one. So it, you need to choose your investors very carefully you need so first of all you need to know where the money's coming from you don't want to be accepting money from places that you don't want to be accepting money from <laughs> you don't want your success yeah. to directly benefit things that you feel really strongly against it sounds obvious but check it mm -hmm. um you also want to be sure that you're not taking on someone who's going to limit your chances in the future. So there are um, some early stage investors who will ask for rights that are going to make it hard 
for you to work in future. Um, you need to look for pretty founder-friendly term, founder terms. If you give away too much of your company, if you give away a board seat too early, if you give away all of these things, it means that top-tier investors, when they come in later, are going to look at it and be like, <laughs> I'm not coming in with that guy on the board. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is dumb. This guy's going to get in the way. And top-tier investors distinguish themselves by knowing when to get operationally involved and knowing when not to. Generally, the answer is not to because you're backing a team to be good at doing something. If the yeah. team needs you to go in, they're probably not the team that you want. <laughs> Whereas generally, um, there is or there is a class of more inexperienced investor who wants to de-risk their investment, wants to reduce their chances of losing, and they spend a lot of time on trying to protect their downside and try and make you do things that reduce risk. Reducing risk is terrible. That's yeah. the biggest risk of all, because the more you reduce risk, the more average the thing that you're doing is. Mm -hmm. And if you put an average input into a startup, you'll get an average output, and you, that's never going to work. The only way that you can get a non-average output is if you do something non-average input. And by definition, that is going to look high risk, but that is the that is the only move that can result in success. So if you have an investor who is trying to get you to de-risk um, or is trying to de-risk their investment in the wrong way, that can be a huge, huge problem. Of course, there is de-risking in the right way where you look at what are your big questions, what are the big things that can break this business and address those up front. And there's de-risking in the wrong way, which is like putting in terms on the investment that can protect my downside, that gives me a liquidation preference so I get my money out first if the company liquidates and things like that, that are terrible for the business. Okay. That's really wise advice. So uh, to be respectful of your time, I know you got to drop here, but thank you, Ben, for taking your time to chat with me today. Uh, I learned a lot and I know the people who listen to this will as well. Grant, it was great to chat and sorry to have to drop off so abruptly. No problem. Thank you so much. Awesome. Take care. Once again, I want to give my thanks to the good people at Memrise, especially Ben and the gal I've been coordinating these episodes with, Emma Vignola. I'll also give a shout out for my kids' Storytime podcast, storytimewithdad.com, since that came up. So as I said at the start, if you want to be on the show or sponsor an episode, reach out to me at hello at grantdryden.com. Visit grantdryden.com to follow me on social media, and I look forward to seeing you all again next time. Mm -hmm.